Hello there. Welcome into Downtown the Podcast, episode number 66 from the Zone Radio Studios in Bangor, Maine, where our downtown show originates every weekday afternoon at 4 p.m. On the Zone Radio stations, WZON, WKIT, HD3. Streaming audio comes through our website at downtownwithrichkimball.com. We're brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Rich Kimball, Carrie Haskell here. And this week on the program, a couple of interesting conversations. Uh, one with a Maine native who certainly made it big in her chosen field of archaeology. Uh, she is a TED Award winner, getting a million dollars for her TED Talk a couple of years ago. A professor at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, and the author of a wonderful new book called Archaeology in Space, Sarah Parkak, the Bangor native, coming up to talk about space archaeology in just a little bit. But first... How about a music legend to get the program going this week? Founding member of the most successful American group in the history of rock music, the Beach Boys. We're talking about Mike Love, who continues to tour with the band and also has a brand new solo album out called 12 Sides of Summer. We had a chance to talk about the album and a little bit of Beach Boys talk as well with Mike Love. Hey, I love the new album, Mike, 12 Sides of Summer. Uh, is it, well, it's an awful lot of fun. It's just a classic summer album. And the first single, very interesting choice, uh, terrific cover of the Ramones' Rockaway Beach. Even got Marky Ramone involved. Well, Marky Ramone came out when we, the day we uh, released the single. He was with us at the Paramount Theater out on Long Island, New York. And uh, he was great. He, we, he went and rehearsed a couple of our songs, like Fun, 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 we do in our encore. And, and I think it might have been, um, I don't know, might have been uh, some Summertime Blues or something. But anyway, he, he rehearsed for the encore and did a great job. In fact, our regular drummer, John Castle, just let him, let him rip with it. And he was great. So that was fun, having a, a Ramones drummer, um, you know, doing a Ramones song in our encore. And California Beach, uh, one of your songs is terrific as well. And that, that's one you've been you've been working on for a while, I understand. Well, the thing is, it should have followed California Girls or something like that back in the 60s, but I'm a procrastinator. To <laughs> but I've had that song in my head for maybe 30 years or something like that. I said, oh, gosh, hey, come on, let's, let's do this song, this album, 12 Sides of Summer, 12 songs on it, and they're all going to be summer-friendly. But this has got to be the open invitation to not only the album, but just to check out California. Well, some great covers on there is as well as uh, your original song. I, I love your version of Here Comes the Sun. But I think my favorite is your take on Girl from Ipanema. Wow. You know, I listened to the original a hundred times so I could sing it in Portuguese, the last verse. And people from Brazil say that, hey, that sounds pretty, pretty righteous. So... But that's a beautiful song. It's a classic, internationally you know, wonderful song. And my friend and producer, um, Paul Farzo, he, he came up with that arrangement. And uh, I think it was so fantastic. I went into the studio and sang the lead, and then I doubled it, and, and, and not only in English but in Portuguese. And they said, how did you do that? I said, well, I stayed up two or three nights in a row, played it a hundred times so I could pronounce things correctly, <laughs> or what I felt was correctly. But it was it was a lot of fun doing this album. But, but Girl from Ipanema, I've had that for maybe 12 years. 
We're talking with Mike Love here on Downtown. Uh, you talk about this a lot. I know meditation has been a, a big part of your life uh, since you, you made your trip to India more than uh, 50 years ago. One of my favorite Beach Boys songs is one that you uh, co-wrote with Carl and Al, I believe, about that experience. I was so happy to see you do it on the 50th anniversary tour. I love All This Is That. Oh, thank you. We love doing it. It's kind of mystical. It's come from the Vedas, these old ancient scriptures from India. And it's a saying, I am that, thou art that, all this is that. And what it really means is we're all coming up from the same, you know, same source, uh, uh, all of creation, all of life. Uh, and so in, in a sense, we're, we're all unified in that way. We don't act like it. <laughs> 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 the world doesn't act like it, but it's the truth, though. And when we do that song, it resonates, you know, it has a really sort of a mystical feeling. I, I'm glad you uh, pointed it out, because you're right. Meditation has been a huge, hugely important part of my daily life since I learned it in December of 67, directly from Maharishi, which was a blessing. A cool head and a warm heart, right? That's right. He said that, and Maharishi said that at a meeting I was at years ago. I said, wow, cool head. you need a cool head and warm heart. So I made it into a little song. Well, it's a wonderful song. While you were on that trip, too, you also, well, you, a lot of people were there. You helped Paul McCartney on some of the lyrics to Back in the USSR, right? Yeah, I was trying to confine the Beatles to Russia, but it didn't work. <laughs> <laughs> he came to the breakfast table one morning with his acoustic guitar. I had to have been the first person other than his girlfriend, Jane Asher, at the time, um, to hear this song. He said, listen to this, Mike. Flew in from Miami Beach, B-O-A-C, didn't get to bed last night, whatever. All the way the paper bag was on my knee, man, I had a drug flight, you know, whatever. So I said, well, you know, on the bridge, in the middle part, Paul, you ought to talk about all the girls around Russia, Ukraine girls and Moscow girls and Georgia on my mind, which he did. It turns out that the, um, the Sir Paul can craft a tune. <laughs> uh, Mike, we know you come from such a great musical family, but I, I think people know, but maybe not everybody. You also come from a pretty athletic family uh, with your brother Stan and, and your nephew, a pretty decent athlete as well. Fairly decent at thirty million a year, I, I think so. <laughs> I said, "Are you happy living in Cleveland?" He says, "With the amount of money I'm getting, I could live in Siberia." <laughs> <laughs> so yes, that's my nephew. I tell him, you know, Kevin, um, I used to be somebody in the family till you came along. <laughs> Mike, thanks again. Really enjoy the album, and uh, thanks for all the great music through the years. Well, thank you for being so informed, yeah, about music that I love, you know. You bet. Uh, good luck with the album and the never-ending Beach Boys and Mike Love Tour. Thanks again. All right. That's Mike Love with the Beach Boys, his solo album, 12 Sides of Summer, out right now. When we come back after a quick word from Cross Insurance, we'll talk with archaeologist and author Sarah Parkak about her book, Archaeology from Space, next on downtown the podcast since its founding in 1954 cross insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in bangor maine into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in new england with the network of offices throughout new england cross insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you your family and your business we are proud to be the official insurance broker of the new england patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team for more information visit crossinsurance.com cross insurance where Security meets strength.
All right, Kerry Haskell, who's the most famous archaeologist you know? <laughs> well, it would have to be Indiana Jones. Yeah, I would think so, yes. Okay, he's not real, <laughs> but still. Uh, our next guest on the podcast is a real archaeologist, professor at the University of Alabama, Birmingham, and a Bangor, Maine native, who's written a wonderful new book called Archaeology from Space. Oh, and she got to meet Harrison Ford. Indiana Jones himself. That story and more as we chatted with Archaeology from Space author Sarah Parkak. Sarah, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I kind of have to because your parents live right around the corner. (laughs) Uh Uh-oh, did my my dad pay 20 bucks for this? Uh, It was actually 25. Oh, all right, all right. That's good. That's good to know. Worth every penny. Uh, the book is is absolutely wonderful, and I, I do want to talk about that, but I wanted to be clear right away. A, I read the book, and B, unlike those people on in Australia, I know you're not going into space doing archaeology. Oh, yeah. <laughs> yes, the, uh, yes I, I believe you're referring to the section where— um, I got some insurance rates that were that were off the charts. People actually thought that I was going to space to look for sites versus finding them on the ground. Uh, it's fascinating to read about the technology. Can can you give a, an overview that the, the average layman and listener to our show would understand? Sure. So um, think of the, the traditional work that archaeologists do, right? We're going out, we're mapping, we're surveying, we're excavating. And what the satellite imagery allows us to do is think of like almost like a space-based CAT scan where we're using kind of like a high-tech Google Earth and we're looking for subtle differences in vegetation or soil that we can't see with our naked eye and we're processing the information using pretty standard software. And then these, these features pop up that look like potential settlements or tombs and sometimes even pyramids. And once you get that information, then we go out on the ground and we either excavate it or map it. I was stunned to see the cost of using some of these satellite images. Now, I, I guess getting better as technology improves, but this is this is not for the faint of heart. Right. I mean, it depends on how much information you want. You know, of course, we uh, we, we archaeologists at state universities prefer free. Um, so we <laughs> use a lot of NASA imagery. There are millions of images online that are totally free. Um, and the cost has come down a lot. You know, when, when I started this work about 15, 20 years ago, a single satellite image could cost many thousands of dollars. Now to get a single image of an archaeological site, um, you know, it's a few hundred dollars. Again, it's not free, but it's definitely, you know, much more possible for, for grad students and beginning professors to use the information. Is it accurate to say that this doesn't replace what we think of as standard archaeology? It's another tool. It's another step in the process because... Once you have these images and, and you have what you think is there, you still have to uh, get down and do some digging. That's right. You know, at the end of the day, you know, what, what this is is a targeting mechanism, um, or it allows you to map sites or features in areas that are either too inaccessible or too dangerous to visit um, parts of the world where there's, there's conflict going on. And so once you have that image or feature or site, you then have to go out on the ground and either dig it up or, or survey it. And frankly, that's the, that's the most fun part. And the technology, as you point out in the book, is not foolproof. And, and you share a very interesting story uh, about what happened when you were looking for Norse artifacts in Newfoundland. That's right. You know, well, uh, many, many people, of course, for the last 50 plus years have been looking for new potential Viking sites um, all along the East Coast up into Canada. 
and no one had ever before done a proper scientific search, kind of letting the data drive what they what they find. And so we did this. We looked along the entirety of the coastline of eastern Canada. We found a potential site after a lot of analysis and research. We went out to do excavation and what appeared to be, you know, a very clear example of potential architecture. Some of those features turned out to be natural. Now, one of the features we found does have multiple sort of radiocarbon and other dates that does suggest it's, it's human and there could have been a burning activity, um, you know, that it still could potentially be Norse. But at the end of the day, you've got to let science speak for itself. What I was impressed about is that the people there were still very pleased with it went and, and gave you credit for raising the bar for future archaeological work there. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, I, I believe fully in, you know, in, in academic honesty. I have to be, otherwise I'm in, I'm in big trouble for the work I do. And, you know, it's ultimately about pushing the boundaries of science. And that, that particular case is what I call kind of more high-risk archaeology, where you're not 100% sure, um, you're working in an area where, where no remains like it has been found before. But I think we now have a pretty good methodology for the future survey and mapping of other potential north sites in the region. And we certainly know from the Viking sagas that there, there are other sites out there. Uh, your husband, Greg, is also a, an archaeologist and Egyptologist, and you write a wonderful chapter about Tanis, which all of us fans of Raiders of the Lost Ark are drawn to. And, and to me, that was a really wonderful story. I had, I had first of all, had no idea uh, about the depth of what is there. It's amazing. You know, this, it was... Uh... It was Egypt's capital for hundreds of years. It was a massive city. There would have been tens of thousands of people that, that lived there. We're talking everyone from kings and queens and printing out the stables for the king. Um, this would have been a really active, thriving city in the, in the heartland of Egypt for both religious purposes and administrative and political purposes. So it's pretty shocking to think that this huge site um, had never before been fully mapped and then with with the satellite imagery, we're able to very clearly see the outline of the heart of the city. We're talking with Sarah Parkak on Downtown. Her book is Archaeology from Space, How the Future Shapes Our Past. And you talk about this in the book that often uh, we focus on things, artifacts like jewelry and things that were important many times to the wealthy and, and the rulers, but that's not the real story. And when you're trying to learn about how people lived, sometimes it's better to, to get away from those things and, and look at homes, look at the way cities were laid out. That's right. You know, when you think about, you know, your your daily life or anyone's daily life, you know, does a, does a, a ring or a piece of jewelry talk about who you are? Or look at the plates that are in your kitchen or um, or the furniture that you have. It's more the objects that you today use every day that kind of give a sense of your identity. And it certainly would have been that way in antiquity. We're, we're much more interested and we get much more information about broken potsherds because that tells us, you know, what activities were taking place, what was being cooked. Um, by looking at the make of the pottery, we can tell the class of the people. Were they rich? Were they middle class? Were they poor? Um, and we're able to infer so much information about trade. So, yes, yeah, these objects of daily life and sort of the, the the houses and the settlements and the outlines of what was there that just, to me, tell, tell us so much more about past people. The book is such a wonderful read, and as I've said to people, it's a very funny book as well. Uh, did you, you got a great sense of humor, obviously, did you have to balance the science and remind yourself, okay, this is not an academic journal, but I, is it true that you also had to say, okay, maybe I need to cut back on some of what you've referred to as dad jokes? 
Yeah. Um, so uh, for those in Bangor that know my dad, JP, uh, <laughs> everyone knows he likes to tell a joke or two, and that's certainly the, the, the household I grew up in. Um, I love I love telling jokes. I tell them probably way too often in, in my classes. Um, and I had this wonderful editor at, at Holt named Michael Signorelli. And at one point, you know, he said to me, "Look, Sarah, you're not a, a, a you know a humor writer or a comedian. You know, trying to write a science book, you're a serious scientist who's goofy. There's a big difference. You need to remember that light touches um, to kind of pull people along." Um, but it got to the point where, like, I'd have one too many wisecracks, and he would just cross it out and write no. Um, so <laughs> there are a couple of good ones that I pushed for, and I was able to keep in. And there are a couple of good ones that didn't quite, quite make the cut. But uh, it's okay, you know. It's, it, it is. It, he, of course, he was right. There's a there's a balance. Um, you know, uh, I, I'm, I'm sadly not a writer for Comedy Central, although if they're listening, I'm certainly available for hire. Um, so yeah, it's, it's important, but it's, but also I think it kind of keeps the book real. It, uh, it, the idea of connecting the past and the present with humor, um, I think helps to make people more open to, um, to reading about history and science. So it's something I definitely tried to try to balance out. Well, it worked. The balance is, is wonderful in this. You talk about uh, the influences uh, on your life and your career in the book. One of them is your grandfather. Can you talk a little bit about him? So my grandfather, um, his name uh, was uh, was Harold Young. He was a professor of forestry at the University of Maine until his retirement, and then he worked for years as an engineer at the Sewell Company um, in uh, in Orono. So, you know, but, but for me, obviously, it was my grandfather, and I didn't quite understand um, that he was, one of the pioneers in the application of uh, aerial photography to forestry. And he kind of picked this up um, during his service in World War II as a captain in the 101st Screaming Eagles. Um, the, the paratroopers would get little fold-out black-and-white um, maps to tuck into their um, uniforms because he, he and his, his troop colleagues would need it to sort of gather themselves and meet at fixed points. And so he took this technology with him to forestry graduate school um, and would use the technology to kind of map map and measure tree heights and look for particular tree species. And to us, we take this for granted because like, we all have Google Earth on our, on our phones. Um, but in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, this was really, really cutting-edge stuff. So the reason I took my first remote sensing class as an undergraduate is because of him. Um, and I thought, well, I bet a lot, a lot of people have used this for archaeology and especially Egyptology, but the reality is not a lot of people had. I'm a high school teacher when I'm not here on the radio, so I have to ask, uh, growing up in Bangor, were there some teachers that inspired you as well? Boy, you know, I brag to everyone still about the quality of um, of the Bangor public school system. Um, you know, Bangor, Bangor kids have gone all over the world and done some pretty amazing things. Um, and it's because of it's because of the teachers. You know, I think of my my fifth grade teacher, uh, Jeannie Butterfield, who remains to this day one of the best teachers I've I've ever had in um, uh, in high school. I took ancient history uh, with Mrs. Searway. Um, of course, Jim Smith in the history department uh, was was always extraordinary. I think of um, of course where I learned how to write, and I think of. Um, uh, gosh, so many uh, extraordinary teachers in the Bangor High School English Department. Mrs. Jones um, being being one of them in freshman freshman honors English. Uh, Bill Ames, of course, was was amazing. I could keep going and going. Um, but there were there were many many teachers who made a big impression on me, and you know, not just for writing and learning, 
but also for how to be an effective teacher um, and how how to show compassion and empathy for your students. Um, that's that certainly held over very well for a lot of the um, a lot of the college classes and college kids I teach. You also had a chance, and you tell the story in the book, to meet the most famous fictional archaeologist in the world, Harrison Ford. <laughs> That's right. Yeah, so this is at, at TED a couple of years ago, and uh, and uh, he happened to come that year, the year that I, I gave my big TED Talk, uh, and uh, the some of the folks there very kindly arranged a lunch uh, between myself and, and Harrison and my husband and a few other people, um, and he such he was so kind and so generous um, to meet with me and to talk with me. His real passion is animal conservation, um, but uh, he was definitely bemused when he when he met me. And I was so lovely to be able to thank him because yes, of course he's a he's a fictional character. You know, as he told me, you probably know more of the movie lines than I do. But the reality is, he ended up inspiring hundreds, if not thousands, of archaeologists of my generation, a little bit behind and, and in front of me. Um, to enter the field with that movie. So um, I was, it was really lovely to be able to thank him for that. And you brought out the hat as well. Oh, yes, yes. We, uh, there's a photo of us um, arguing over the hat, and sadly that is one I can never share publicly. But, uh, <laughs> yeah, when I, when I pulled it out, he said, I can't believe you brought the hat. And he, looked, <laughs> and he goes, only you would ever get away with this. I would never let anyone else pose with me with this hat. So thank you. He was definitely indulgent with me. Uh, the TED Talk also led to an appearance on Late Night with Stephen Colbert. What was that experience like for you? It was wild. I mean, you know, you never, you don't know what's going to lead to what. Um, and and when I got the notification, I sort of had to rub my eyes and go, really? The, the Col Stephen Colbert, The Late Show? And it was actually the first live taping um, of, of The Late Show, so no pressure. Uh, and I remember just before I went on, one of the producers pulled me aside and said, look, okay, I know you're nervous, um, but some bits of advice for you. First of all, academics, you talk way too long, short, quick, pithy answers. Uh, secondly, Stephen is the funny one, not you. Let him drive the conversation, and it will go really, really well. Uh, and I listened to her, um, and, you know, we, we, had a, we had a blast. There was one moment, though, I didn't know whether or not he'd bring out um, some of the satellite images I'd sent to his team, and he did, and they were upside down. And so I flipped over one once, and he and the audience laughed. And I thought, I'm not going to get lucky again. And the second image he brought out was also upside down. So of course, me being my father's daughter, I waited a second and then flipped it over. The audience lost it. He looked at me. He like, you were having way too much fun, which of course I was. Um, and yeah, it was it was amazing, but. Uh, I don't know if I could do that again. I have to ask you this. Uh, I noticed in the acknowledgments, and I'm a big fan of both of them, uh, you talked about Bella Fleck and Abigail Washburn. What's the connection there? So, um, so yeah, so the, uh, uh, Abby and Bella are good, are good friends. Um, Abby was in my TED Fellows class in uh, 2012. Um, so they are just the, the kindest and most generous, wonderful human beings. Um, so yeah, I've, I've gotten to meet some really, um, really amazing people, uh, in, in my, in my work and in my, in my job, I feel very, very blessed in that respect. So what's the future of, of space archeology? span Where can you go from here as access uh, and technology improves? I think as, as things develop, we're going to see a lot more work with drones. Um, obviously satellites, you can use them to map 
you know, much larger areas, drones, you can use them to focus on a specific site. But I think we're going to see a lot more sensors and tools um, attached to drones for faster and more, more accurate mapping. I think the satellite technology is only going to get better over time. Right now, the highest resolution imagery um, to which we, we mere mortals have access is a resolution of about 11 inches. So think roughly the size of an iPad. Um, but that, that, that resolution is going to improve over the next decade or so. Um, and I think the cost will continue to come down. I think more and more will be cheaper and cheaper and cheaper um, for, for, for us to access. So, yeah, I think, um, as, as you know, I have a chapter in the book where I talk about what archaeology is going to be like in 100 years. And we're at that time, we're moving to more autonomous drones and dig bots. Um, but I think we're starting to see some of these technologies employed now. And why is it important for us to continue to look to the past for answer, answers that can help us prepare for the future? Well, I think, you know, regardless of which side of the political aisle you're on or whether you've totally left any, any political aisle, I think we can all agree that you know, we're dealing with a lot of challenges right now in our world. Uh, of course, from, from climate change, uh, we're, we're facing enormous threats as the Arctic is on fire and Greenland is melting at rates that we thought we wouldn't see for another 50 years. Obviously, enormous political conflict, tension, the rise of white nationalism, hate crimes. Um, it's pretty tough right now to, to feel any hope for the future. And I think what studying archaeology does, at least for, for me and for my colleagues, it shows us this tremendous diversity of perspectives and cultures and religions and languages um, and peoples. And, and ultimately, everyone living on the planet today is a distillation of this great diversity of ideas. Um, and the idea that diversity should be celebrated because it, it's what makes up our modern identities. Um, you know, I think by studying the past, by learning about other cultures, it opens us up. It makes us more empathetic. Um, certainly when you're standing in front of the Great Pyramids of Giza, I don't care who you are or what your beliefs are, you're going to feel awe. And if you don't feel awe standing in front of the pyramids, there's nothing I can do for you. You're officially dead inside. Um, but uh, but to, to feel awe means you feel small. And to feel small is not to feel bad. It means you, you are open to the possibility of the extraordinary achievements of other people. And you realize you're, you're just one person in, 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 a, in a sea of billions. So that's what I think archaeology can do, because when you feel awe, you're open to feeling empathy. And when you feel empathy, you can connect to other people. And if you can do that, maybe you'll be a little bit nicer to them. And maybe you'll start to recognize that diversity is important and that these past peoples had so many different ideas for how to deal with things like climate change and that we there's a little bit of hope moving forward. Archaeology from Space, How the Future Shapes Our Past is the title of the book. It's a wonderful read, by the way. Uh, also a great follow on Twitter at Indy from Space. Sarah Parkak, uh, love the book. What a delight to talk with you this afternoon. Thank you so much for making time for us. I always have time for my Bangor folks. Thank you so much. Sarah Parkak, talking about her book, her experiences hanging with Harrison Ford uh, and more, and Bela Fleck and Abigail Watkins and living an interesting life and doing some great work. you got to like that, especially when it's somebody from right here in our hometown taking care of business. And her work is amazing, and, and her writing style, you know, it's a different field, but the same approachability that Stephen Hawking brought to a difficult subject with his work, she has that approachability in her writing. It's, yeah. it's great. It is. It's a fun read. It's interesting. And I think you, you'll like it. Pick it up. Archaeology from Space. Sarah Parkak. Our thanks to Sarah and, of course, the music legend, Mike Love of the Beach Boys, for joining us. And thanks to you for being with us this week as well on Downtown, the podcast.